Welcome back to the program. We live in a world usually between the mundane and the absurd. But regardless of which, it is one that is organized usually to the nth degree. Our technology almost embedded in our personal DNA is there to keep us on task. But is all this structure an impediment to creativity? And if so, where else might we find it? Where might we get back that youthful sense of play, of wonder, and of discovery? For some, it's in travel. Visiting strange places, strange surroundings take us out of ourselves. For others, and often closer to home, it can be found in art, in what my guest Alvin Noe refers to as the boredom of art. Art that, unlike so much of culture, goes beyond surface and draws us in. Sometimes to see the world in a brushstroke, a dance step, a well-crafted sentence, or in a grain of sand. Alvin Noe takes this discussion of art to a new level in his new book, Strange Tools. Alvin Noe is a professor of philosophy at the University of California, Berkeley, where he also serves as a member of the Institute for Cognitive and Brain Science and the Center for New Media. He's a graduate of Columbia with a PhD from Harvard. The focus of his work in recent years has been on the nature of mind and human experience, and it is my pleasure to welcome Alvin Noe here to talk about his new book, Strange Tools, Art and Human Nature. Alva, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me with you. It's great to have you here. I'm, you know, I'm reminded, you know, the old John Lennon line, life is what happens while we're busy making other plans. In many ways, art is something that happens to us while we're busy doing other things and in our structured world today. One of the things, I, I was at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City last weekend, and I spent about two hours in one of the exhibitions and I was amazed that, from what I could tell, almost nobody else was looking at the artwork. They walked into the room, they were talking with their friends, they snapped a few photos of the art, they snapped a few photos of themselves in front of the art, but they, they didn't actually kind of pay attention to it. They didn't stop and look at it. And um, so one of the funny things is, we can be surrounded by art. You know, it's $25 for an adult to get into the Museum of Modern Art, but to actually let the art be present in your life is something that we need to make an effort to let happen. And when we do start to let it happen, talk about that sense of, of boredom that you discuss in Strange Tools that is in many ways part of the art experience and what it allows us to do. Well, you really, in your, in your introduction, you kind of hit the nail right on the head. I mean, I, I come at this from a quite, this, this point about boredom, I really come at in a quite personal way. I, I remember as a child knowing a certain kind of boredom when, you know, in the summertime you didn't have any activities and you were really left to your own devices. And there was a sense of time sort of ticking on like a metronome, one second after another, one sensation after another. And um, I remember that as an irritating kind of experience. And, and, and I'm calling that boredom. And what struck me the other day was that just about the only place I've ever experienced that kind of irritating sense of being trapped in time, trapped in one second after another, is when looking at art. And, and I said to myself, well, why should that be? Why should art be boring? Because I don't say that as someone who dislikes art. I say somebody who's really in love with art and 
somebody told me that my book was like a love letter to art, and that's really true. I'm, I'm in love with art, and I'm trying to understand why it's so important to us. So what's the link between art and boredom? And, and I think I, I came up with a, with a proposal. The reason why we get bored as a kid is that we, we really are just in, in one second after another. And the reason why we don't have that kind of boredom as grown-ups is that, as you said in your introduction, we have projects, we're organized, we have plans. What, what did you do today? I went to work. Um, what did you do that year? Oh, that was the year I was working for so-and-so. Um, we can collapse great stretches of time down into these organized units, which are really projects that have beginnings and middles and ends. And one of the things that art does, I hope I'm not giving you too long-winded an answer, no, no, but one no. of the things that art does is it interrupts those projects. If you let it, if you let it, it interrupts that, that habitual kind of organization that makes time just shoot by. And it puts us back in something like the case, the situation we were in when we were kids. And, um, and it, this, this, this kind of, this, this, this feeling, this experience of boredom. And I think of that not as a bad thing. I think of that as art's gift to us. It, it lets us experience something really about the human condition, um, which gets hidden in the hustle and bustle of organized living. Talk about the ways and the reasons that it does that, and how much of it is because it is not just about surface, that it, it has to draw us in to, to really appreciate it, to, to engage in what you kind of talk about as the practice of art. Yeah. I mean, how many times have you gone into a museum? And by the way, I use the museum example because most of us, that's where you would go to see art. But I don't mean to, to assume that the museum is the only place where people can have an interesting or valuable encounter with, with art. It can, happen, it can happen all over the place and in any different modality. I'm not also just thinking about painting. But how many times have you gone to a museum and, and you don't really get it. You're, maybe you are just with a friend and you're, you're talking and you're, the things are all, you know, there they are, they're all kind of interesting, they're hanging on the walls. But it's almost as if somebody forgot to turn the on button on and, and nothing is happening. It's just, it's just background. But then if you, if you do make this effort to look, if, and, and by look I don't mean just open your eyes and stare, I mean asking a question, thinking, um, letting yourself kind of uh, take an interest in what is there. This extraordinary thing that can, ha can happen, which is that all of a sudden, these fairly indiscriminate, indeterminate bits of decor acquire a whole different kind of presence. They, they, uh, uh, they, they now seem fascinating, whereas before they seemed dull, and they now have depth, whereas before they seemed flat. So, that's such an interesting thing that you can go from, you can have this kind of perceptual transformation from not seeing to seeing or from seeing to seeing differently. And you can have that experience just there in the gallery. So I think one of, one of the things that art does is it gives us an opportunity to have that kind of a, of a reorganization of our seeing or of our experiencing. But not just that. Art goes one step further and it lets us have that experience and also catch ourselves in the act of having it. And to me, you know, because you don't, 
you don't just go from not seeing to seeing. You, you experience the way in which, through looking and thinking, your, your sense of the presence of the work of art comes to be. And to me, that's a, that's a kind of self-revelation. That's really revealing something to us about, about ourselves. And that's a very profound thing. That's, that's, that's what philosophy aims at, too. Philosophy aims at this kind of unveiling of ourselves to ourselves. And I think that this shows that there's a very important link between art and philosophy. How much does it also have to do with context and the context of the time? That to see a piece of art at one period of time and have this experience is, can be fundamentally different from having it 20 years later or 20 years previous. Absolutely. I think that's exactly right. And I don't think that's a bad thing. It shows that works of art are not these static, um, sort of concrete things. They're actually sort of, they're like gestures in a, in a, in a whole communication. Um, and that communication is situated. Um, it's like a joke. I could tell you a joke, and today in 2015, you might laugh your head off the same joke in a different context, or maybe if it's a rude joke and you know, the next situation, you know, our grandmother's in the room with us, all of a sudden it's not so funny to tell a, a lewd joke in front of your grandmother. All of those things matter. And I think that one of the things that art works with is context. It, it works with everything that you bring to it. The, the show that I was looking at in, in New York that I mentioned was Andy Warhol's Campbell Soup Paintings. And think how much information people bring to seeing those paintings. I mean, about Campbell's Soup, about commercial culture. And nowadays, in 2015, looking at those paintings which were first put on display in 1962, all the information we bring about Andy Warhol. I mean, in 1962, Andy Warhol was a nobody, excuse, you know, if you, mm -hmm. if you know what I mean. He was a commercial artist with no, no recognition as an artist. In 2015, he's considered a great American artist. How that transforms what we want to get out of the, of the paintings when we look at them. The other thing that changes, and, and this relates to philosophy, I suppose, as well, is the practice of talking about art, either in the mm -hmm. presence of it or after seeing it. Yes. Talk I mean, there's a, sorry, there's, I mean, there's a very practical point there, which is that um, what, what people say to you, the conversations you have can make all the difference to how you, what you take away from, from an art evening. I, I saw a, a dance performance a couple of years ago in San Francisco, and I sat there from start to finish thinking, this is horrible. I can't, I, I can't believe I'm going to sit through this. Is this for real? This is so terrible. And then at the very end, um, somebody next to me said something to their friend. They weren't with me. They were just people sitting near me about what the work was about for them. And it completely, as if on a dime, my entire evening oriented, and I got something out of it. So it was as if they, they gave me a clue how to see what I hadn't been able to see or to get what I hadn't been able to get. So I don't think that's separate and after the fact. To me, that's really part of the, part of the engagement. And good critics, that's what they do. They don't just tell you what they think. They call your attention to stuff which is going on in the work which helps you see it too and enjoy it too. 
And all of this is part of kind of taking it back full circle. It's part of this lack of structure that is inherent in this process that gets back to, to being something that is not like everything else in our lives structured from beginning to end. That's right. Precisely because there's no structure, what we're, what, in a way, a work of art, and I think, by the way, this is, this is true of old art, too, not just art in sort of, you know, since 1900 or since 1820. Um, art is a big question mark. You know, if it's a picture, you ask yourself, well, well, why did the artist make this picture this way? If it's not a picture, you say, well, what is it? Um, and art poses questions. And one of the beautiful things about art, and this makes it different from baseball and different from politics and different from physics, is that there's no, there's no rule book that tells you how to answer those questions. Um, you really need to be, you, you as, a, as a person looking at the art, need to be creative. And if you just go look up in the art history book and say, oh, this is why we're supposed to like Leonardo, or this is why we're supposed to like Picasso, that's not having a genuine art experience. That's just learning about the art. But to actually see the art requires letting yourself also be puzzled by it. And these are all, these, these are all reasons why um, art is bound up, as you say, with conversation and also with context. And you're also right, you suggested this at the start of your previous question, uh, this points out the link to philosophy, because philosophy is exactly the same. Philosophy is about questions, not about conclusions. And in order to do philosophy, you need to be open to the questions. Many people find that very uncomfortable. As I, I teach at a university, I teach undergraduates, and some of them are comfortable asking questions to which there are no known answers. Some of them are comfortable asking questions where it's not even really clear what the question is that we're asking. You know, when you ask the question, what is the relationship between mind and body? Well, what do you mean by mind? What do you mean by body? What do you mean by relationship? There's a lot of different ways in which one can ask and answer those questions. And I think that makes some people nervous uh, because you're taking away the playbook. You're taking away the rule book. And I think both philosophy and art do that. They force us in a situation where really all we've got is looking, talking, thinking, asking, and trusting that there is some value in that process. And I think there is a value in the process, but it doesn't consist in getting the answer. It doesn't consist in knowing the ultimate truth. It doesn't consist in landing on the one single right interpretation of the work, but it consists in a kind of reorganization of the way we see and experience, which is, I think, uh, really... Um, well, it's, it's one of the most valuable things that I know in life. It's, 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 it's a profound kind of learning. Is there a page in the playbook that has been added as we learn more and understand more about neuroscience and cognitive science and see literally how this works, how it plays in our minds? That's a great question. Um, there's, there's, I think the answer to that is, is really quite simply No. But more needs to be said. Um, neuroscience doesn't have uh, a, a definitive account of how any kind of seeing works or any kind of perceptual consciousness works or consciousness or experience in general. Um, and they certainly don't have an account that can be applied to, to art in understanding the way we experience that. Now, that's not to say that um, neuroscience isn't a very valuable undertaking, um, in a way, neuroscience is full of questions, too, and is still searching for answers. And, and it may be that in time, uh, neuroscience will have something more to say about these questions. But at the current time, what, what usually happens 
when neuroscientists turn to these questions is that they, they call attention to important neurological principles that underlie our ability to see anything. So, for example, um, they might explain how looking at a Mondrian painting activates and um, relies on our exquisite color perception systems in the brain. Um, that's all well and good, but it doesn't tell you why seeing a Mondrian is different from seeing any old colored object, uh, because after all, the brain is activated in anything that we see and do. Um, so if you think, that the, if you think that, that the encounter with art is different from just encountering a colorful object, um, then, um, then I think you're going to be dissatisfied with what neuroscience has to say. Now, you might respond to that, okay, fine, as perceptual objects, neuroscience doesn't have a lot to say, but this is other thing called aesthetic experience, and neuroscience can look at the neural correlates of that. And the problem there is that aesthetic experience, and in a way, this is what we've just been talking, aesthetic experience is about context, it's about judgment, it's about conversation, it's not something that happens all in a flash, it's certainly not something that is triggered in me by simple exposure. I don't get aesthetic experiences just by entering the museum, just by buying the, the ticket to get in. Aesthetic experience is something you achieve. It takes time. I do it with my friends, and I do it. I may, I may do it over days. Uh, and it's not clear that one can intelligibly ask, what are the neural correlates of that? Or rather, there may be tons of interesting neural correlates of that, but they're not going to tell us what makes them aesthetic. The interesting irony, I suppose, is that while this is about, as we've been talking about, an appreciation of lack of structure, in many ways this process of, of, of putting aside that structure and appreciating art helps us make sense of the world in ways that give us a whole new kind of structure. Yeah, that's, that's, that's so true. Um, there's this interesting kind of... Um, yeah, I, I, can't, I couldn't have said that better than you just said it. We, we, we create these, these works which then loop back down and change us um, and alter, the, alter the, the conditions that led us to create them in the first place. I mean, there are very simple examples of this kind of an idea. Um, dancing is one thing and choreography is another. People dance at a party, they dance at a wedding, in some cultures they dance at a funeral, and they dance for all different kinds of reasons. Uh, when, when artists or so-called choreographers put put dance on display on the stage, they're doing something else. They're not just dancing, they're, they're putting it on display. Uh, they're showing it, they're, 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 um, they're exhibiting it. But what's interesting is that how people dance is influenced by what dance looks like on the stage. It loops back down. And, and you, I'm thinking of the stage, but you could also talk about you know, music videos. Think about the way MTV let images of what it looks like to be a good dancer circulate and influence the way people dance. So art, which starts out as a kind of attempt to, in some sense, um, represent this activity of ours, ends up looping down and changing it. Um, How is it different for the creator of art? We've been talking about it from the point of view of the observer, the viewer. Talk about it from the, the perspective of the creator of art. That's a, that's a great question. And it's actually one that I'm not entirely uh, confident how best to answer. Um, in some ways, I, I, I sort of assume that 
I think of I think of the art as doing a certain kind of work. It does this work of unveiling us to ourselves and doing it in a in a way that lets us change ourselves. Um, and I see that I see the creator and the observer as both participating in this work. Um, the the creator is caught up in in um, in making it. But what's interesting is that the if, if this approach that I take is right, and here, by the way, I should say I'm following in the footsteps of the great American philosopher John Dewey, if this approach is right, then actually the observer is also making the work because the work is the experience and the experience is this thing that we achieve through the kind of thoughtful engagement, not just as a result of being stimulated, but through really through a kind of an active looking. Um, so on my perspective, the standpoint of the maker and the standpoint of the sort of consumer of art are really the same. Alva Noe, his book is Strange Tools, Art and Human Nature. Alva, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. What a terrific conversation. I thank you very, very much. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 